Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author, and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. This is Aviv, and welcome to this podcast episode of Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with thought leaders, experts, and with fascinating minds. And we explore ideas and practices that can help you create new futures for you and for your business. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Werner. Paul is a 25-year veteran of the tech industry with a proven leadership experience in large and mid-cap technology companies serving global customers. He currently serves as the Vice President of Sales for the Western U.S. at F5 Networks, a security and application delivery company. Paul and I initially met and had the opportunity to work together when he was at Cisco Systems, leading the data center sales for the U.S. And what impressed me as I got to know Paul a little bit was that in his own way, he was leading what I call a modern Renaissance life. He is an avid reader. He loves to travel. He enjoys good food, coffee, and wine with friends. And he is, first of all, a devoted family man to his wife and two daughters, all while delivering significant growth results with his teams. So, Paul, it's great to have you on this podcast. Welcome. Wow. Thank, thanks, Aviv. And that uh, was a very generous introduction. <laughs> what, did I, what, what did I miss about your background that I should have mentioned? I, I'm not so sure about the Renaissance man, but I'll take the compliment. I actually referred in my book, uh, Create New Futures, to my experience of working with your old Cisco team in Portal 5, how to scale and speed up by slowing down. And that's another angle at being a Renaissance person and a renaissance team in the way you approach work. Uh, how would you respond to that? And, and do you agree generally with my characterization of, of you determining to create for yourself holistic uh, life, whole person life, not a life that's just purely and narrowly focused on, on work results? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's interesting. I have... Um purposely tried to, to position myself so I do have balance in my life. I, um, I feel it's been uh, very important for my family and uh, especially my children. I have a very close relationship um, with my two daughters. They're now uh, 17 and 19 years old. And uh, we continue to enjoy each other's company. And I think that um, reflects upon the investment I put maybe earlier in my career. Uh, my wife and I also at um, some point, I'm not exactly sure when it happened, but decided, um, you know, while we could do other jobs or move around quite a bit uh, for a career, we, we decided um, that um, family would really become a priority for us. And, uh, and uh, we've, we've managed life in a way that, that we could do that. We've been very fortunate in the roles I have and her flexibility in her career that have allowed us to do that. Um, it's interesting that you picked that part up about um, 
reflection and uh, I jotted some notes uh, after reading Create New Futures. And that's one of the areas that I think that reflection and action loop um, and making sure there's balance in, in both the action side of life and reflection side of what we do from both uh, our personal and career lives is really important. I know that reflection is something I'm always uh, trying to improve upon. I, I think in the tech industry, we're, we're certainly up in the hurry up and do more and do it faster. Um, or we get caught up in that quite easy, quite easily. And so taking the time to reflect is uh, really important. That's an area that just continue to be ongoing work for me. And Paul, is this a determination that you made earlier on and decided that you will be living you and your wife, a balanced life, or was there a particular point where you felt we are actually a little out of balance here and, and we are going to reprioritize and rebalance our life. I'm asking because I know that there will be people listening to our conversations who are earlier in the, the life journey and, and career and, and are thinking and are grappling with, with these questions. So I'm interested how you came upon and about making this decision. Yeah, I think um, early on, maybe we went down that path. I'm not sure it was necessarily conscious um, early Early in career, I had some outside activities I really enjoyed doing. Um, and uh, when I was younger, I was a avid mountain climber, and I still like to spend a lot of time um, in the mountains uh, locally in terms of where we live. And in order to do that, uh, work was a way I could fund the next trip. <laughs> and, uh, and we enjoyed traveling while we were younger, and that's something that stayed with us over the years. Now, I, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong if uh, people decide that they want to place career first. That's, you know, a personal decision. And many people are, are uh, you know, obviously very successful in doing that. It's just that for us, uh, we, we place a high priority on our own personal health. And personal health also goes into our relationship health and mental health as well. And so having balance is just something we found has worked for us and our family. You mention often to me that, that travel and adventure used to be part of uh, your life earlier on, but that you still enjoy traveling. What, what's a recent exciting or adventurous uh, travel you've been on? Ah, well, that's a good question. The, um, I think most recent was uh, we had the opportunity to take my 82-year-old mother to Sweden. So her, um, she's of Swedish descent and... Uh, we were able to um, visit relatives and uh, and travel with her, and it was really, I think, a really fortunate experience. Both my daughters went, my wife, um, and uh, to see their grandma travel and be excited uh, about um, visiting uh, her her um, place where her ancestors uh, were fun. And then earlier, uh, maybe six months before that, I traveled to Japan uh, to experience the culture and actually do some skiing. And, uh, you know, those are things that excite me and refresh me for work. They, I, you know, when I come back from those type of trips, I, I feel like there's been a big reset and, uh, and uh, productivity gain when I come back. And it gives me time just to distance myself from the day-to-day the -day, uh, activities uh, of the workplace. So this idea of, of really making sure that you are able to find carved time where you are not connected to work, where you are in a completely different space, different place, engaged with different activities, 
and and um, that other part of your brain that we're going to talk about in a minute, the, <laughs> the sales and leadership is really resting, and you are completely recharging and replenishing other other lives in you, other parts of you. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I find. I, I understand. I, I'm not a golfer myself, but I understand the appeal to that. Um, based upon, it really drives you to focus and eliminate a lot of the day to day distractions. And there's a lot of competition for our attention in today's world. When you think about, we have all these mobile devices, and we're bombarded by advertising all the time. Um, but to really take the time and focus on an activity or other people without those distractions you know, it sounds obvious but it's it's a real um, it's a real way to reset and i actually try to practice that almost on a weekly basis to have some weekend activity that allows me to just shut out you know a lot of the distractions from the work week and to reset my mind that's that's beautiful that's great one last question about the the travel experience you refer to. So what's the learning from a multi-generational travel adventure with an 82-year-old? And, and I think you said your daughters were, were with you on that trip? Yeah, the, uh, the really interesting thing is um, it, it was fun to see um, my daughter's grandma, my, my mother, just so engaged and excited. And um, she walked with us everywhere you know we had to dial back the pace just a little bit uh, but she was there with us uh every step of the every step of the way and uh it really made for just some uh just really great family time and uh i was just you know really excited we had the opportunity to do that that's amazing that's great so Reflecting on all that you were able to do and enjoy in life, largely because of your success in your professional career, if you reflect and think about what made you and what makes you a successful leader of a team, of an organization, and especially of, of sales people, how would you reflect back on, on your journey in uh, leadership roles like these and what made you successful? I think I was very fortunate. Um early career to have some strong leaders that um, I was able to work very closely with. And while it wasn't a formal mentorship relationship, uh, let's say maybe informal, I, I had very strong leaders. And I think back at um, the time uh, while I was at Cisco, the, um, the, the leadership was very strong. I was also fortunate um, to be able to participate in a number of offerings. Um, you know, obviously the leadership programs that oftentimes the, the bigger companies will offer. And uh, those were important to my own uh, development. And then I also think it just um, it's important for me to connect on certainly a human element uh, on the human side and relationship side with uh, my employees and the people who work for me. So it's like I, I want to know something about each and every person on the team and make sure I am able to connect at a human level. If I'm not able to do that, then, then I feel like that's where I failed in uh, my leadership. And uh, so that, those have been some in, um, important areas for me. I think that the mentorship, uh, either formally or informally, uh, has been really helpful. I, I had the um, good fortune to work for some very strong leaders that helped develop uh, me. And then uh, the thinking through on a human level and really wanting to connect with the people 
that I work with and, and that I support uh, have, been, uh, have been very helpful. So let me follow up on, on both of these themes. First, the, the mentorship, and the, you're saying informal mentorship. Were these situations and relationships that you sought out and were you active in inquiring or seeking the experience of those leaders? Or were this more the, the type of learning by observation, learning by immersive experience with them and seeing how they reacted to, to these situations? I'm, I'm wondering how focused and targeted were you? That's question one. And also, if, if you can share an example, so what, what, what is a leadership trait or a leadership behavior that you picked up from um, some of those relationships with strong leaders that, that inspired and impressed you that you wanted to perhaps emulate? Yeah, I, w- I would say to answer the question, for me, the development, I think, came from a, an immersive experience uh, allowing me to um, work with those individuals either uh, directly or indirectly observe and I think emulate would be a good way to put it. Some, sometimes certainly seeking out specific counsel um, on areas and those people always being available to help coach me. I think there was one particular uh, person I think of early in my career that um, well, I never reported to directly was always um, available to help coach and mentor and provide perspective. That was helpful. And then certainly I had some uh, direct line leaders that uh, while working on their teams and being immersed in uh, what we do within the industry, uh, certainly provided great role, role models uh, for me. Now, in terms of, um, there's one particular leader I'm, I'm thinking of. He connected just extremely well uh, with people on an, indi- on an individual level, not only um, people that maybe were below him in the hierarchy, but also above him, and uh, just really had uh, a way about them that was able to connect with um, multiple people of um, certainly of uh, different cultures because he was in a global job and still is in a global role, um, but really was able to make a human connection and uh, and actually be playful in that relationship that made work fun. Mm, right. And, and so this leads to the second theme you, you identified for your success, which is your ability to build relationships at the, at the human level with people on your team and taking interest in them, in their life, in what motivates and, and propels them, and in understanding perhaps a bit the context that they come out of. Is this something that came to you naturally and you are always like this as you reflect back even to earlier stages of, of your life? Or was there a point that you said, hmm, for me to be successful in sales, for me to be successful in leadership, I have to strengthen and build this capacity to connect with people and I'm going to actually focus on this to develop my ability to, to connect with people deeply. Again, my question is, was that natural and intuitive for you? Or did you discover at some point that this was something you wanted to consciously develop? Yeah, so let, let's, uh, let me examine that a little deeper. As I, as I think back, 
as a young child, I had trouble reading in the uh, very early stages of uh, elementary school. But on every report card that was sent home, my teachers would notate, gets along well with others, which I think is interesting, which may have, may have had, uh, maybe I needed to do that to make up for some other deficiencies uh, in my learning style. Uh, but then, uh, so I think some of that might have been in, innate from a, from a young child, but then I also remember a lesson I learned while uh, while working, and this was probably in the uh, 2000s, I was working with a very senior executive at uh, EMC. And at that time, I was at Cisco Systems, and we had uh, a joint partnership. And uh, it was not easy, actually, to find necessarily the joint value in the solution or product we were bringing to market. And uh, so I had really set off on a track thinking and trying to understand what that joint value proposition would be uh, for both companies. And I remember having this discussion uh, with the senior exec there, and he said, Paul, Paul, you have it all wrong, uh, the values in the relationships. That that's, has stuck with me. Um, you know, sometimes uh, we get hung up on a certain path or uh, as a certain vector. and uh, But stepping back and really thinking through um, what the organizations were doing and trying to accomplish, and then realizing it really is in the relationships um, that we bring together. And that solution did finally make its way to market and was successful. Um, but to really step back and think about, you know, what's most important in this, in this joint venture, if you will, and it was really the relationship. So that's kind of stuck with me and continue to drive the help uh, kind of wind its way into some leadership. Uh, principles. See, this is a fascinating moment in time that, that you're sharing. And, and I'm always very interested in those moments. Sometimes they happen in, in a strange, unexpected, uh, just a, a moment of conversation with a stranger or with somebody that you know, but somebody says something and because you're in the right place, in the right timing, in yourself, in your journey, and it gets somehow into you and you internalize it and it becomes part of your topography of values and what propels you. And I'm always very interested for people to identify those that I call life centering moments where you, something happened or you were in a conversation and, and there was something that occurred that you can look back and say, you know, that occurrence, that moment, that statement really stayed with me and in some way shaped my philosophy as a leader and in the way I work with, with my team. So fascinating that, that that moment occurred. If you were to search in your memory to identify another life-centering moment, then it may be something completely different. It may be sometime you skiing by yourself down a um, difficult slope and, and you're struggling through it or, or any other, but something that you reflected on and you say, you know, something occurred there in that moment. It shaped a bit the way I approach things. What, what comes to mind? I'm, I'm thinking deeply on this one. You know, I, I think back and um, in general, if I think about what motivates me, I realize I am, I believe, like many of us, um, fairly uh, achievement oriented mm -hmm. and uh, that sometimes can get in the way of the relationship 
building. So it's something I have to be mindful of. Maybe, you know, it goes back to if I think about when I was much younger doing um, more mountain climbing, you know, there's always another taller hill to climb. Right. Uh, and and uh, there's always the next degree to get, right, um, in graduate school. So I think, uh, you know, realizing uh, that, you know, does drive me, but not the let that become the main focus. I think allowing success to follow, but really focusing on those relationships to help bring that about. Right, right. And were you led right away into that intersection of technology and sales? Did you know that, yep, that's the space I will operate in? Or, or were there other steps before you find, you find yourself in technology and specifically enterprise sales and leadership? Uh, no, cer um, certainly wasn't a uh, map to plan. It was emergent, as I like to say. And um, I, for me, I know some people, if you ask my wife, she would say she knew what she was going to do career-wise, um, probably since she'd been in high school. And for me, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know uh, after finishing at the university. And uh, I entered in and I had, uh, had done some software development work uh, when I was a student. Yeah, so right out of school, um, I, I had um, done, I had some software skills out of school, and um, I hired into uh, IBM, received some great training, and at uh, some point, I uh, was on a technical track there, um, but I was uh, working with some sales reps, helping them sell the technology, and uh, realized at some point I was doing most of the selling, and they were making most of the money, <laughs> and... Um, so I thought maybe that that is something I should uh, try. And so I'd moved into um, some more specialized technical sales there. And then uh, as uh, the Internet was starting to take off and um, corporate America was building uh, IP networks, um, I was recruited by Cisco Systems and um, moved into a sales role there. And then had during that time, I um, certainly was thinking, starting to think about career. My, my first daughter had um, just been born. I was in my early 30s and uh, saw the folks in leadership and, and knew that was the direction I wanted to take. I didn't know necessarily how far um, I would go with that, but that was certainly a, an area I wanted uh, to take. And that's, I think that's what led me here eventually. Yeah. The beauty of this story, which again, for me is so interesting, is that you found yourself in a situation where you were exposed to and discovered a skill that you had. You said, I was doing most of the selling and they were making most of the money. Exactly. And, and it, it's not that up until that point, the, the idea or the concept that you will go into sales was probably not in the foreground, was not something you, you realized. And, and so the lesson for us, and when I hear a story like this, I, I say, you've got to expose yourself to different situations because they will expose back to you your gifts, your skills, And in some way, this relates to something that I'm addressing at the end of the, the book when I talk about the Michelangelo moment or the, the Michelangelo concept. And I propose that we go through life, the journey of life is chiseling out what is not our essence, what is not our core competence, what is not our sweet spot, so to speak. And through experiences, we discover where we should 
invest more of ourselves because the yield is, is greater. And, and this is just a beautiful story that validate that concept. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, my, uh, my mother was a school teacher and uh, my, uh, my dad uh, worked at Boeing uh, as an engineering person. And um, so really hadn't had much exposure to the business world and really as a youngster hadn't ever thought of sales as a career I would uh, go into or necessary leadership. I think um, one, one thing I, you know, I guess it could be good or bad, but uh, I, I think maybe in hindsight, it turned out to be a really good thing is my, my parents left that up to me to find. It wasn't, there wasn't really any career counseling as I look back, <laughs> as right. I look back on it, which uh, now it seems like it's, it's a lot different in terms of, uh, and maybe how we work with our daughters, but I, I want them to find their path as opposed to me trying to find their path. Yes, yes. So talk to me about then the journey from sales into taking on leadership responsibilities and w- w- what guided you uh, in, in that sense? Was it, again, uh, climbing the, the, to the next opportunity or, or was there a different process that led you into leading teams? I think... Um, I think at some point it was, uh, again, um, we talked about um, maybe formative moments in career. And uh, early on as a rep, there was um, um, a manager, a few managers I really enjoyed working for and uh, admired them as uh, people and as uh, managers and bosses. And so I think when the opportunity became available, um, it's something certainly that I went after. Um, and, uh, cause I really, I, I really saw myself, uh, in that role and it, it's some, it's some part of the job I, I really enjoy right now in terms of, uh, mentoring and developing others. And yeah, maybe it's a, a switch that, um, many of us make at some point in our career and some people, um, always enjoy being an individual contributor and that's just fine too. There's, there's, um, plenty of value in that other, other people, um, you know, like, like the other side of the equation. And uh, that just happened to be where I, land, I landed right now. But to me, it's uh, very fulfilling. Um, and I, I really enjoy um, oftentimes working um, with people in uh, early stage of their career and even working with some folks on the other side. We, we all have something to learn uh, from each other and contribute. How would you describe your management and, and leadership style? Do you get very involved in the sales uh, process of of your team do you do you stay uh you fly at, at a high level how how do you help them most you know it certainly depends on the situation um i certainly don't want to you know you know micromanage i've never been a fan of i don't enjoy it so it's not something um i want to do i am available there and there to help and support um but also in these roles you know certainly there's a level of accountability we have to take for all of our own actions and for our team. And, um, you know, I, I, have, I play that role uh, as well as the, the support role and, and garnering resources uh, for the team to help make those people successful. But, you know, I really want people to learn and develop on their own and feel like um, they're contribute, contributing and uh, they're doing something meaningful. And we spend so much of our, our lives at work and in our career that, uh, you know, if it's not meaningful, then I, I think you'll be just left with a, a hollow and empty feeling. Right. Well, the, the point I think you're making, which is a point you and I have spoken of, that, that in 
the lifestyle of, of a corporate career, people often spend more time with their co-workers than with their loved ones. And, and therefore, unless the work environment is fun and energizing and you respect and sometimes admire the people you're working with or even that work for you, and therefore you promote in each other your best, unless there is that level of meaning making, the work experience can be very tiring and very exhausting. And it's not something you can sustain over a long um, period of time, um, decade after decade. Yeah, absolutely. You need to feel, again, connected, right? And uh, when the, if you're not feeling connected, um, then it's, I think people are just not fully engaged and are giving it their all. And, and so you talk about your role as a, as a manager is in part a mentor, part a coach. What, what are some important insights and tips that you have developed through the years of, of managing successful teams where each and every person is different and you're saying that I need to learn to connect with them. But how do you, what are some of the practices you bring to the table to promote in each of those people working for you their best strength? How do you approach that? You know, I, I think uh, as um, certainly spending time with them, right? Um, getting to know them as people. And this kind of sounds maybe a little cliche in terms of what motivates them, their communication style. Um, some people text, some, especially these days, some people, some people email, some people are more voicemail oriented. Really, you know, if I can find a way that optimizes how we communicate, and I think going back to your book, how you have conversations with folks, it's, um, it's easily, it's more, e it's easy or easier to understand them as people and what drives them. Right. Um, you know, one, one thing um, I certainly took away from Create New Futures is, you know, for all of us to think about what we do in our own development, but you use the model of a three-story house. Yes. So, you know, where we, on the first floor, uh, we work in the business. On that second floor, we work on the business and more strategic aspects of what we need to do as leaders. And three, um, that third floor, maybe that attic, we work on ourselves as uh, leaders, as people, as salespeople, as engineers, product managers, et cetera. Um, and I think, um, you know, I presented that framework uh, to my team uh, several weeks back, and it resonated with a lot of them. And most of them realized they don't spend much time on that third floor. They spend a lot of time on the first floor. That's um, awesome. That's, that's awesome. That's very gratifying for me that you're able to uh, just um, take it from the book and, and work with it with, with your team and that it resonated and that opened their minds to, uh, to these ideas. So uh, that, that's really awesome. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that was, uh, it, it was, uh, it was actually, a, it's a fun metaphor to play with, uh, with the team and present and, uh, and people get it right away when you frame it that way. When, when you reflect that at the best, uh, the, the top performers that have worked for you over the years, both in Cisco and now at, at F5, what are some of the practices that you have seen with the best performers? And, and uh, I'm curious what you'll say. Will, you, you may tell me, hey, there are different peoples that get to deliver success in, in different ways, or, or can you identify some 
commonalities and, and common behaviors and practices in some of the, the top performers? Yeah, certainly. You know, the, um, I was uh, with one of our top performers uh, several weeks back, and I had asked him that exact question. You know, thinking through as we put hiring filters on uh, as we're going through the interview process and trying to disseminate and share that information with the rest of the team. And, you know, one thing that comes out is uh, they're generally curious people. Uh, they ask a lot of questions. And uh, for certainly for salespeople and, and sales engineering people, that, that's uh, imperative, right, to really uncover uh, needs that their clients have or pain points. So I find, um, you know, generally people that are, that, are, that are curious, the top performers are very curious about things, and they ask a lot of questions of their, their customers and partners. Um, the thing is they tend to be um, well-organized and, and have um, discipline to their approach and work. And I think that's, that's a very important attribute, I mean, meaning they, they show up every day, they have a game face on, they do the hard work it takes to be successful, and that success follows them. And then a, another area um, that I think about is, and I'm continually stressing with my own teams, is to really engage the full resources of the organization uh, behind them. And uh, I find the folks uh, that, that do that tend to be more successful in the team. And, um, and that oftentimes... Uh, takes a while for folks to learn or it takes more coaching uh, for some people than others. Um, and, and I don't know why people are resistant to that. And maybe they're afraid to show uh, weakness or vulnerability in areas where, the, where they feel there's a gap. But um, the folks I, uh, that do uh, tend to engage those resources, um, in my mind, tend to be more successful in the long run. Right. So number one, curiosity inquiring deeply to understand the client and the problem that they're trying to solve and getting interested in the client even beyond just the, the sales process. That's number one. Uh, number two, being very well organized and, and disciplined such that they can perform consistently uh, at a high level. And number three, engaging help and uh, engaging a broader network of support and not being defensive or resistant uh, to um, seek help and to fly, not just solo flyers, but rather fly information to borrow my, my Air Force uh, a metaphor there. Great. But if, if you needed to add a fourth attribute or behavior, what would you uh, highlight? Yeah, you know, th there's, a, I think, an innate desire to be successful. And, um, and do the things it takes to do that, you know, certainly in, a, uh, in an ethical manner, I would say. Um, and I'm sure there's many others that, you know, we could think of as we really try to pick that, uh, that apart. But th those are the things that, you know, I think on a, at a high level that I think really contribute to the success of some of our very best people. Great. Well, how would you describe the difference of experience of working for a very large company like Cisco and, and the current experience of working for a smaller company like F5, what, 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 are, the, what are the pluses and, and uh, what are the negatives in, on both sides of the experience? Yeah, well, I would say I, I was fortunate in my Cisco experience in that I joined the company about the time it was about the size of the current organization 
uh, I worked for and went through really a rapid uh, growth uh, period and worked with some extremely talented um, people. Some of those people are CEOs of other uh, tech firms now. So it's, um, you know, with a, I think back on those years with a lot of gratitude and, um, and thankfulness that I was able to uh, work in that environment. I'm comparing it to a, a smaller company. Now, a smaller company um, is, again, I think, even more relationship-driven. Mm. And you feel like, I think, that your contribution um, at a smaller company, I think many people would agree with this, you know, your decisions can make or break the company sometimes, depending on what role you're in, um, in a smaller organization. So um, I think um, your actions, um, I think, at a certain level can be felt more or have a deeper impact at the small organization as opposed to, you know, when you get very, very large, depending on what role you're in, obviously, your actions may not make or break a quarter. Um, right. It certainly could in a smaller company. Right. Right. So the, 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 the impact and the influence you have in a smaller company uh, and the visibility is, is certainly uh, greater. Yes. And, you know, another thing I found out just because I'm local to where our headquarters is, that, you know, I have the opportunity, to, you know, I'll run into people, um, maybe our CEO at a, at a Sounders game, or uh, I can I'll run into people as I'm parking the, uh, parking the car in the, in the garage, or, or maybe our CFO or chief legal counsel. So the opportunity to have, you know, informal uh, contact with folks is greater, uh, maybe at a, you know, obviously at a smaller company than maybe at a, a larger company. Right. The challenge for a fast-growing company is always how to maintain some of that DNA and some of that culture as you rapidly grow. Uh, and that's a challenge that many, many companies struggle with. Uh, yes, exactly. And I think um, at some point, you, you know, you just you can't do it because you get so large. Um, but uh, it's certainly a challenge. And I, I think that's been uh, kind of, uh, you know, positive um, you know, kind of resetting back to a smaller organization again that I, that I personally have enjoyed. You wrote to me a couple of weeks ago that you enjoyed the metaphor of the expanding universe and leaning into our new futures, which I'm discussing at, at the end of uh, my book, the, the epilogue. This is a, a mental model that where I reflect on the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics awarded to uh, Saul Perlmutter, Adam Rees, and Brian Schmidt for discovering the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. That is to say, we knew that the universe was expanding for a long time, but people, science believed that the expansion was slowing down and will implode on itself at some point in the future. And I propose that the discovery ought to um, inspire a whole new kind of realization about life because they practically shuttered the foundations of cosmology and physics because the acceleration of the universe expansion means really that the universe is pumping out extra space between celestial bodies and as they uh, move away from each other faster and faster and faster. And, and by the way, they were astounded with the data and they thought initially that there was something false in, in the discovery but when the data was validated, they realized that they needed to rethink uh, their models. 
And ultimately, what that shift led to, I'm proposing that the shift to an accelerating universe, accelerating in its expansion, is not less dramatic from the point back in history of science when scientists needed to rethink and shift from geocentric, that is Earth-centric, to heliocentric, that is sun-centric view of, of the universe. So ultimately, science and, and the cosmologist, the leading cosmologist, came up with this idea that the universe is filled of, with dark energy as the explanation. Of course, no one knows exactly what this dark energy is, uh, but the mathematical formulas suggest that the universe must consist of something like three-quarter of dark energy. And the point of, of this long story that I make in the book is that if, if you embrace the fractal idea, where, for example, the atomic structure reflects and mirrors the shape of the galaxies around us, or if you like to um, look at the same idea in the scripture, you will find that men, and I dare say women, are made in the image of God, as the scripture says, or, or the idea of as above, so below. But the whole point is that if you enter that mental model or metaphor or, or actuality, rather, then if the universe is made of three-quarter of unrealized potential, then my point is that you and I, too, are only accessing a very small part of our potential currently. And that if the universe continues to accelerate to its realization of its field of potential and how to express that, then we too can accelerate our growth, not just by speed, but for example, by and through the example of increasing impact. This talks about, for example, being wiser as we evolve in age. And, and sometimes you will now be able to achieve an impact with somebody working for you by listening more or by saying something softly Whereas maybe 15 years ago, you'd need to talk, explain something for 20 minutes that you now accomplish in, in five minutes, and which is an example of accelerating your impact. So I, I was really excited that this idea, this concept resonated with you because of all the ideas that I'm discussing in the book. This is one of those more out there uh, concepts. So I'm, I'm curious if you can say more about how it, it resonated and in what way uh, are you able to uh, use the, this idea or this mental model? Yeah, well, I would say I'm certainly not as articulate as you are in speaking of the origins of that theory. Um, but uh, just um, I, ha I have this interest around astronomy and astrophotography, in, to be specific. And so um, that argument or analogy you were putting forth um, to me was a little mind bending and I enjoyed that uh, kind of mental wrestle I had with it. And, um, for me, you know, thinking about and leading a team in, at an organization, I think in a lot of ways is in transition because of events and ideas that are going on in the industry. And, uh, in particular, I'll, um, you know, just probably the only time I'll say it is, um, cloud computing is a shift in the general uh, thinking and thought processes of an industry that has been largely uh, premise-based. And getting my, getting my teams and my leadership teams to 
lean into the idea of how we bring our clients and customers along in that journey. And I, I think of the expanding universe and that theory as the expanding market or expanding size of the pie, if you will, if we're successful in making the transition and leading into it. If we stay in our old ways of thinking, we won't successfully make that transition and we'll be just, we'll end up as just another tech company. Right. right. With a, with a, with a good history, but didn't quite make that transition into where the world was leading us or into that expansion. So that that's, I think a lot of how that analogy played out for me. I'm not sure it's exactly what you meant, but that that's how I applied it to, you know, my thinking at the time as I read that. No, that's that's exciting because that's an angle that I didn't see myself. So the way I translate what you just shared with me is by by transforming and innovating what we bring to market. In the case of of F five networks or any other company, as you transform and innovate what you bring to market, you are expanding your universe of possibilities. You are expanding your total addressable market. And you are potentially accelerating your impact and, and value for customers and, and therefore your opportunities and your chances to win. Yeah, and it's, and it's critical that folks lean into that new future, right? They lean into that expansion. And while it sounds obvious, it's not always easy to do. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, so that's how that metaphor kind of played out in my mind at the time as I read that. From the vantage point of working at F5 and, and without disclosing any confidential ideas or insights that you're not at liberty to talk about, but if you were to talk at high level in terms of the security and application space, what are the couple of large themes and trends that you are seeing evolving in, in the next few years? Uh, yeah, certainly. And I, I think, um, you know, one thing that, you know, currently we're dealing with and we kind of term this the Snowden effect is encryption and encryption everywhere. And uh, um, customers are, you know, I'd say, you know, from just the prior 18 months are just much, much more aware of the importance of that, but also being able to um, not only encrypt, but also look into the encrypted data that's coming inbound or going outbound to really get a feel for any, you know, potential um, security risk that um, reside within that encrypted traffic because it does just because it's encrypted doesn't necessarily mean it's safe to pass, right? There could be malware within that encrypted um, that encrypted traffic. So that's, that's one area. The other area that um, we're really seeing is the, um, the traditional thought of, um, of boundaries for the enterprise have really uh, dissolved. And, um, say, and say, that one, say that one more time. I don't think I, I got clearly what you were describing. Uh, the traditional boundaries right. of uh, enterprise have dissolved now. Um, you know, so many enterprise applications are now available on a mobile device. Um, and you're not always going back to an enterprise data center. You're going to... Um, you know, software as a service someplace. You're using some application that's provided by some vendor that the line of business has decided is critical for them to utilize. And so, you know, the, the, the movement to really understanding identity 
is uh, becoming just of utmost importance and um, the, the boundary changes depending on where you're going. So, um, you know, I think identity and access management are, you know, certainly areas in terms of how we access the applications and making sure we're doing that safely um, with multiple levels of authentication are, are, are areas where certainly the industry is moving fast. Security challenges are not going away. Security and, and dare I say, parallel to it, privacy, which is a different challenge, uh, but needs to be addressed as well. And as you're describing the, the, the breakdown of, of the barriers, the traditional uh, boundaries of enterprise and um, consumer type solutions and, and applications. These are big themes, big trends that will continue to disrupt and transform the space, I imagine. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I um, you know, there, there, are, there are other areas, you know, that I, that I think lead to interesting questions. I think um, this last uh, election uh, process and, you know, what we're seeing play out in the news in terms of uh, manipulation and, and hacking. And, you know, I had thought in the past that, um, you know, why shouldn't we move to an all electronic um, voting system? And then I realized there's really never been any completely 100% safe computing environment ever, ever made. And uh, probably, not, probably, probably still good to have the paper record in, in some areas of life. And uh, as I've, my thought has changed on that over the last probably 90 to 180 days in terms of um, our ability to truly secure things. That's a fascinating comment from somebody who is so uh, deeply rooted in, in the technology space. That, that, that really is quite fascinating to hear from you. When uh, you were mid through uh, reading the the book, uh, you also wrote to me that you were caused to reflect on the seven fall ladder that I discussed earlier in in, in the book, and that it inspired you to volunteer uh, because of what you wanted to serve. Uh, so, again, what what inspired me when you dropped that note in in the email? was that you had no delay from reading something or getting an idea or being inspired and translating it to action. For me, this is just such an important factor in my work and in how I engage with people. I, I want to see this immediacy of application, immediacy of translation. So that, that inspired me, and, and I'm curious to ask you, how was that event that you volunteered to, to support uh, with, with your daughter. Uh, tell the story, actually, and, and uh, tell about the experience. Yeah, well, maybe 15 years ago or so, um, I wrote myself a personal letter, and I keep it tucked in my desk. And it was almost, um, you know, in some ways, it was challenges to myself, but also around personal values. And I try to pull that out once a year and, and read it, and especially as I clean out the clutter from my desk, I always come across that letter. One of the questions was, is, did you serve? And uh, that was meant for me just as a, really as a trigger to think about, um, you know, have I served the community or, you know, potentially um, someone outside, you know, one myself, but also my family and uh, really kind of focused on the greater community. And I, I'm not a, one of the, I, mean, I, I admire people who have the ability to uh, volunteer uh, and become engaged, and I, I think it's a it's a trait um, that comes easily for some people, and not so easily for other people. And you know, I'm a little 
zealous uh, with my time. I try to guard that that family time is so precious, and obviously work takes up a a large component of it. That uh, that reminder to serve is important. So as I was reading the book and came across that that ladder, um, the seven run ladder framework, you know, certainly serve is is right above play. And I, I felt like I've been uh, I've had some good play time this past twelve months um, with some of the family vacations and things we've done, but uh, maybe had been lacking on the serve. And my daughter had asked me to play a part for the junior boys retreat at the high school she attends. And uh, of course she wasn't going to be there, but she volunteered me to be a cabin dad for that. And it's a, it's a weekend retreat. Uh, she goes to a Jesuit high school. So it's really focused on um, developing um, some spiritual awareness uh, for the boys. And um, yeah, so I, 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 uh, I, I read that. And uh, shortly after a note had come across in my email, asked saying they needed some volunteers for that or the might have problem running the program that weekend. And um, so immediately I volunteered and, and, the, and the book was a good reminder of that. And it was, you know, it's fulfilling for me to do that, uh, to spend time uh, with these young guys and um, provide some mentoring there, but it, it's really run by the high school seniors to the juniors, but uh, they need the cabin dads there for support. And I know the guys appreciated it. And you mentioned in the same note that a, a year earlier when you were there, you, you were reading and perhaps rereading Frank Hill's Men's Search for Meaning. Which I love. That's a great yes. book. Yes. What, what other books have you recently explored that um, inspired you and, and left you uh, with, with new ideas, with new thoughts? Yeah. Well, the, the current one I think I'm, I'm more or less wrestling with right now is a book called The World Outside Your Head um, by Matthew Crawford. And uh, he wrote a few a book a few years back uh, about um, it was called Shot Class is Soulcraft, and it was really trying to bring the argument forward that maybe uh, the traditional four year university education isn't for everybody, and that we really need to be rethinking and rethinking how we uh, do vocational education and training in uh, in in the U.S. In fact, I just heard something recently uh, about talking about the the system they use in Germany where at an early age you're determined in terms of maybe will you go to trade school or will you go to the, the university system. And I know that's not always a, a popular idea here, but I think people are starting to rethink that in terms of um, skilled manufacturing jobs based in the U S but anyway, that, that book is what I'm reading right now. And that's all about attention and, uh, and, and, and making sure, you know, we develop as individuals in this age of distraction And I think another book I, I really enjoyed, um, and I actually read this one a few years ago, was uh, Thinking Fast and Slow right. uh, by Daniel Kahneman. Um, that was uh, a, a really about um, human bias and decision-making. I, I just thought that was, uh, that was a wonderful, wonderful book and very illuminating, and uh, that, that's interesting. And, of course, I like anything by Michael Lewis. <laughs> he's, <laughs> right. he's, he's always a fun read. So. Right. When do you read? When do you find the time to, to read? And, and is it just end of the day before you go to sleep? Or do you have a sacred time during the day that, that you read? How do you do that? Yeah, well, that's a good question. <laughs> my, my wife was watching The Voice last night, and I was uh, in a chair next to her reading. <laughs> um, so we're, when I can, I, I'm not a um, big TV watcher. Um, I just right. I prefer to read the, the quiet time. I, I mean, I do watch it uh, occasionally, but uh, I prefer, prefer to read. 
I'll try to mix it up when I'm on an airplane traveling for work. I'll um, certainly be catching up on uh, work activities and then uh, try to spend a few minutes. Uh, well, that up sounds like a, a that sounds like a fantastic collaboration. If she's watching The Voice and 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 you are reading and you can do both at the same time, it's it's a rich uh, rich experience to to create uh, together. Right? The, the point there, of course, you know me by now. I see themes and lessons and ideas in everything. This idea that two people can spend rich time together while they're actually interested in in different areas of of pursuit and and exploring concurrently in the same space is is part of the mystery of successful relationships. So uh, well done for that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we joke we're alone together. There you go. <laughs> So, Paul, this uh, was a rich uh, exploration today. And as we bring this to lending, what parting wisdom do you, do you want to offer, perhaps to somebody younger in, in life and in career, perhaps even parting wisdom to the you that you were, say, when, when you were in your early 30s, from the kind of experience and wisdom you have today? I think, I think earlier on I would have focused um, you know, a greater amount on um, continuing to develop uh, the, re- re- the relationships, but in an authentic manner. And uh, I think that's uh, certainly, certainly key. Um, one friend of mine who I, I greatly admire has been a, a mentor for me, has reminded me in all things relationships, uh, especially personal, practice forgiveness. <laughs> that's probably the one most important one I can think of. That's great. The, the big theme that I am harvesting from our exploration and, and journey today is, is relationship. How central relationship is to everything in both the professional and the personal. And what I'm also distilling from your experience, it, it's not something you can take for granted. It's something you need to choose to invest in quality time, quality attention. Uh, so it, it's a wonderful uh, parting message and uh, Thank you for uh, joining me on this Create New Futures conversation today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it.